the entity that's registered on title is what's called a bear trustee corporation. And the co-owners are not registered on title and the bear trustee is registered on title on behalf of the co-ownership. What's very important is the co-ownership agreement. It's like the holy Bible of how the co-owners behave amongst each other. Hey, investors, you're listening to the Investing to Win podcast, the show dedicated to empowering investors to achieve financial freedom and live your best life. This show is committed to offering honest conversation between investors, common sense strategies, real-time market updates, and professional guidance to achieving financial freedom. Investing doesn't have to be super hands-on or complicated. We are all about passive investments with real gain, so you have freedom of time and money. Your host is none other than Garrett Wong, who brings decades of experience in buying, renovating, and managing cash flow investment properties. Thanks for being here and get ready to invest to win. Good afternoon. My name is Garrett Wong. I'm the host of the Investing to Win podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Cal Reich. He's a real estate investor, multifamily residential, focusing on co-ownerships. And that is actually the subject today. Cal, welcome. Thank you very much, Garrett. Nice to be here. All right. So um, for those of you, probably our community may or may not have heard of you. So I, I like to always start with a little bit of background. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. So I'm, I'm 48 years old. And um, until recently, I, I ran a uh, property management company, a uh, local property management company here in Winnipeg uh, that managed about 90 buildings, uh, over 2,000 apartment units, and a few other smaller asset classes. Some, uh, some small amount of commercial, uh, some industrial, uh, pre- but predominantly apartment buildings. It is a uh, family-owned business, and it was started by my mom and dad 50 years ago, and I worked uh, alongside them for many, many years. And I was running the company for uh, almost 14 years, and the management com- there's the management company, and then there's, the whole- there's our our family holding companies and, and also other holding companies. And my position was not just managing the, the property management aspect of it, but also managing the investment side with respect to the family holding companies as well. Prior to that, I had spent three years working uh, actually in Southern Ontario as a commercial real estate appraisal. And believe it or not, in, in, in my 20s, my dad set me up with a line of credit and I actually uh, flipped homes as well for a few years, flipped about eight homes, and uh, I, uh, I would f- buy and sell and offer uh, secondary financing as well. And then my, my educational background is a degree in urban studies, a property management de- designation, and then I've co- completed the, the majority of courses in the commercial real estate appraisal designation in Canada. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's quite the resume. I almost feel like um, we're in a court of law and uh, I've now established credibility with my, <laughs> with my witness. Um, but all jokes aside, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's very interesting. You know, you've got a family background, but then you were seeing, you know, the parents doing this and then obviously going and getting your own education, commercial real estate. What made you uh, uh, leave Ontario? Yeah, it's a good question. Ultimately, uh, at a certain point, my dad uh, had had enough. He 
he reached a certain age where he he recognized his mortality, uh, and that's actually a difficult thing to do for a certain generation. And he asked me uh, if I wanted to come back and run the business. And uh, I was married at the time, and I, I knew I if my my wife at the time didn't agree, then I, I, w- I was not interested. In fact, I was a little bit lukewarm because I know the issues with family businesses. But uh, she encouraged me to do, to do this. It would be an, a new opportunity. And uh, of course, I had already spent uh, a number of years working in the family business. So I, I decided to, to pursue it. Okay. Very, very interesting. So let's dive a little bit deeper. Like, Obviously, property management company, but I mean, this is a large operation. I mean, I my little company uh, pale seems to pale in comparison. But from what I understand, um, you said how many buildings under management? About ninety. Ninety buildings. Ninety. Okay. Uh, what I call smaller walk-ups. You know, between uh, twenty and forty units. Twenty and forty units. Okay, and. You don't own all of these, obviously, because you said you had the holding company and you've got, okay, so a lot of this is third-party management uh, for people who are owning them, right? So that's what I call third-party. Yeah, I'd say about half of it is third-party. And then the ha- the other half are properties where our family holding companies have an interest in those properties as well, which makes a huge difference in terms of how you approach these these properties. Of course. And I imagine the ownership group likes the property management company to have a little bit of so-called skin in the game, right? I, yes, I've heard exactly. All heard that. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Uh, and and all of these, all of the properties where there where we had an interest ownership or we, we do have an interest ownership, uh, those were co-ownerships that initially were set up by negotiated and set up by my dad. And then I continued to do those. Okay. All right. Well, that that's a fantastic segue because um, part of what we're talking about today and why I wanted to bring you on is the concept of co-ownerships. Last week, I had a real estate lawyer talking about joint venture agreements. And that this is kind of uh, along the same theme. But in terms of what you kind of specialized in, can you define for the audience what a typical co-ownership would look like? Right. So co-ownership is, is it's, a, it's a group of individuals that own the property either individually or by way of their holding corporation. And the entity that's registered on title is what's called a bear trustee corporation. And the co-owners are not registered on title and the bear trustee is registered on title on behalf of the co-ownership. And what's very important is the co-ownership agreement. It's like the holy Bible of how the co-owners behave amongst each other. Okay. So that would be, I, I imagine, I mean, it literally the podcast episode with my real estate lawyer um, got released this morning. But I mean, he, he was speaking about joint venture agreements, regardless of what the structure is of the ownership entity, whether it be a corp or a partnership or whoever's on title. But that, that's what you're talking about here. A co-ownership agreement is sort of like a shareholder, sort of like a joint venture agreement. It's very similar. There may be differences in terms of taxes. Ultimately, the bear trustee is called a bear tre- trustee because it's bear. It doesn't report income, uh, any tax advantages, whether it's um, ca- capital cost allowance, uh, for example, that gets passed down to the individual owner. 
So that is that would be uh, that is unique. Uh, th- that's uh, certainly unique with the co-ownership structure, as opposed to property being owned just simply by a corporation with people owning shares of the corporation. Yeah, because I, I mean, I've, I've been doing this for a bit. I've interviewed people. I'm part of a lot of networking groups. And it seems like when people get together on, again, let's say a three, $4 million three-story walk-up, very typical here in Winnipeg, a lot of them just put the company, sorry, the title of the asset in a typical corporation and everybody gets shares, be it 33 and a third or 50-50. And then they have this joint venture agreement, what you're describing is completely different, this bear trustee corp. It doesn't report any income. And as its sole purpose is just to be registered on title. And depending on the individual owner's personal income tax or corporate income tax will dictate how much they want to declare as with respect to their capital cost allowance. Okay. So let me give an example. Let's say we have three groups in a co-ownership that owns uh, an asset that's registered as a bear trustee corp. All three of those groups could be corporations. They could be individuals. They all pay whatever tax they pay, whatever flows down through dividends or cash flow or whatnot. Yes. Yes. Okay. Now, obviously, listen, I'm not a, I'm not an accountant. (laughs) I'm not a lawyer. So, uh, and, and as I get older, my memory is starting to get more rusty and I rely on those experts to remind me of the benefits, but generally speaking, yes, that's generally how it works. Yes. Yeah. No, it's funny. I just came back from a real estate conference in Toronto, uh, last night, actually. And one of the best quotes I've heard they said, make sure you have an account. Like every single speaker was, you know, talk to your accountants. I'm not an expert. But the best quote was, and I hope I don't screw it up, the cheapest accountant costs you the most amount of money. I agree with Isn't that. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yes, I agree with that. Make sure when you're getting professionals, part of your team, absolutely, most importantly, is, is getting getting good good people that not only that you can trust, but they also trust you. It goes both ways. Yeah, no, trust is a huge thing. Uh, we co- you know, we covered that last week and trust doesn't really trump what's in an agreement, right? It has to be trust first. Okay, so now we've got a group of owners. So let, let's uh, move on a little bit. Um, can you walk us through the initial steps that you would take in identifying, let's say, an apartment block and then bringing together your groups of investors? Right. Yeah, the initial steps, it's interesting. It's not... It's not necessarily so methodical. Generally speaking, you're always on the prowl for real estate, uh, and you use different avenues to to find them. Whether it's just uh, getting flyers emailed to you of uh, properties, uh, speaking with agents periodically, and getting in the in the know with the agents, and then speaking with property owners. Property owners, perhaps you manage third party in your own company. Uh, and that actually, that last point is actually a very, very good, it's a, it's a, a very effective way. Uh, you have to be strategic now as a you know, property manager slash real estate inv- investor. When you're managing property, you, you have to sort of be strategic as well in terms of the type of properties that you're managing. And to think long-term that you're managing investment-grade real estate, that at some point, there may be an opportunity to acquire that, that real estate. Not that you're trying to do anything uh, nefarious to your, 
your clients, but you certainly have the ability to select the type of asset class that you are managing. And so there were reasons why, for example, I took on more investment grade real estate as opposed to managing condominiums, for example. Again, you know, my dad used to say, you can only dance at so many weddings, at so, at, at so many weddings. And so if you spread yourself too thin, focusing on many, many, all different types of things that, uh, again, you're spreading yourself too thin, you're not really actualizing your, your strat- the strategy that you, that you may have. Uh, so it's important to think about that. So as I said, there's different avenues you're, you're, you're on the prowl for these asset for the type of asset class that you're that you're interested and what's important with these co-ownerships is that you need to have a a, um, how can i describe it sort of a a group of potential investors that you're going to invest with but the trick is and this is the trick is that it's important to have them so to speak in your back pocket it's also important to for them to understand that this is a that this is requires a lot of patience that you may not find anything immediate but to always keep in touch with them uh, because there may be a time where uh, something is good something something is rewarding and then you're going to you're going to call them up okay so let me let me interject there so there's an asset i mean lead generation wherever these things are coming from sometimes they're from your own company um that's fine but in terms of the uh, investors the owners um i i know in the pre-show we had spoken about sometimes you're doing this for a group of owners and sometimes you're doing it with your family sort of taking a small interest or even yourself with your own hold co are you sort of trying to look for properties where you know that you would personally have an interest or would you say that there's literally a group of four really good friends and they're like Cal, if anything comes up, the four of us want to buy a building and you wouldn't really have anything to do with it except maybe the management. Right. Generally speaking, I'm always interested in one of our holding companies to take a piece. And as you pointed out, the skin in the game, it's very important. But additionally, as you know, Garrett, uh, investing in real estate is, is is a very profitable type of uh, strategy. So you're doing a tremendous amount of work. These opportunities don't come out often, uh, especially good opportunities. So this is a time for you to be an investor or uh, as well, a managing partner. And in terms of finding these investors, again, it's through years and years of networking, but it's the, it's the perfect marriage between the investment side and the managing side. As you manage more and more properties, whether they're of uh, investment, you've, you're, you've, you've strategized that you're going to focus on investment grade real estate and you're managing properties, third party, third party properties, you start to develop a network of, of, of investors. And through reputation, again, built on trust, these investors that have their own property start asking you, you know, when, if you find something else, can I, uh, let me know, I'm interested. And more and more people start uh, asking you those things. And so then you start building your, your black book of potential investors. You've managed their buildings for a number of years. They have trust in you. So it's very quickly to access that type of capital. You call them up, you know, I, I've, I had, there's something very interesting 
And uh, would you, are you interested? You know, and I mean, in, in, in short, yes, yes, I am. And that's how you build your network. It's through, it's through the development of doing work for those investors as well. Okay. No, I, again, quoting this real estate conference, that was one of the key things is they always say your network is your net worth. And I know that sounds, that sounds corny, but it really is who, you know, who trusts you. And because you're doing this a lot in the context of managing some of these investors assets already, there's an automatic level of trust there versus just, again, a guy on YouTube, right? Exactly. Because really they have to trust you to contribute a substantial amount of equity. Okay. So for the decision-making process, I guess the building comes first. There is either an opportunity from within your own portfolio that you're managing, or you hear of something and somebody says, Cal, I'm getting out. If you know anybody, you know, maybe you can put something together to buy my building. Then you're just making phone calls at that point. Yeah. I mean, obviously the first, the first order of business is to analyze the investment uh, because ultimately the um, it, whether it's from in, internally or whether you know you've, you're chatting with an agent and the agent says, you know, I know a guy who's interested in selling his his apartment building, you're ultimately ultimately your your you, your first or your first order of business is is start analyzing the investment because ultimately when you call when you call your investors they're going to want to know information they're going they're going to want at the very like even with the phone call they're going to want to know some very basic information uh, so you got to do your homework in terms of uh, analyzing it, the the current value, the future value, the ca- current cash flows, future cash flows, all those types of things. Sure, sure. So um, when you're looking for a building, what would you say is a, a ripe target for something that would be very desirable? And I, I don't I don't say that meaning, hey, you know, we want to buy something in this area, that area. Yeah. I'm saying, you know, three-story walk up, are we looking for something with lower rent, higher rent? Is there significant upside on... Um, on a renovation, right? You know, it's. It, I'd love to just give you an easy answer that yeah, it's got to be low rent, good area where you can just reposition it and you know and refinance and pull out money. But sometimes you invest in properties that the rents are fairly stable and maybe there's just a little bit of uh, tweaking, but it's a good area. You know, ultimately you're looking at, or I always look at long term. I'm always looking at long term value. Really, you're a winner in the long term because the nature of real estate, as you know, Garrett, is you're you're using the the income of the real estate to pay down the mortgage and provide you some cash flow. But ultimately, in the long run, it increases your net worth. So there could be situations where you have properties in good areas that need to be completely repositioned uh, and you know rents lifted capital expenditures. Uh, there's also it, instances where, where the property actually has a reasonable cap rate and maybe it needs a little bit of a lift in terms of the, in terms of the rent. Uh, there's also examples of properties in smaller towns where the cap rates are even better, but, but there's some uh, potential. There are the small towns stable and you know that there's certain investors that you can call that kind of like the higher cap rates. Did you know that there is a big difference between investing in real estate and becoming a real estate investor? People become real estate investors all the time. They get into a flip or conversion project or even dealing with long-term tenants. And they come back to us to tell us the same thing. 
it's like having another full-time job. I don't know about you, but that's not what we call investing. Investing in real estate is about having your money work for you in a way that is passive, consistent, most importantly, hands-off. So which one are you? Do you want to be a real estate investor or do you want to invest in real estate? For those that are open to investing in real estate and having your money work for you, listen up. Garrett Wong has spent decades helping thousands of property owners navigate the ins and outs of property investing and management through his award-winning company, Upper Edge Property Management. Their new division, Upper Edge Capital, is currently involved in multiple projects, from single-family flips to multifamily development. Are you looking for a healthy return on your invested capital? Or perhaps becoming a joint venture partner? If so, go to www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest to book a time to speak with Garrett and his team to see if there is a fit. Once again, the link is www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest. Now, back to the show. I've always thought, because just like my background coming from doing a lot of birds and flips, that, that really opened my eyes, what you just said there, re- really resonated with me because you've got, you. but basically what you're saying is there's nothing wrong with buying an apartment block that's at max rent. It's in a good area. The cash flow is what it is. It's for a decent cap rate and therefore a decent retail price. And you just buy it because it's a good investment. It doesn't have to have all this crazy upside and work involved. Exactly. Exactly. Especially, you know, as they say in real estate, location, location, location. I'm sure you <laughs> if you're, you're Let's go through all the cliches. Yeah. We're going to go through all the cliches because there's a lot of cliches that re- real estate professionals use. But exactly. Now, listen, it's certainly it's more equity. You need equity, but maybe you need to increase the partnership. But there's nothing wrong. At its core, real estate is an investment tool. At its core. I mean, we can... You know, talk talk about the, uh, the 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 you know the 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 discourse that is real estate the the topic, but it's it's just an investment tool. So you do have to sort of think, okay, you know, in terms of alternate in terms of alternative forms of investment, how does this one rate? And yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I can give you. Um, I mean, I didn't invest with it, but I did get a call from client who I also do business with that said, you know, there's an opportunity in, in a smaller town in Brandon and the cap rate's pretty good. Doesn't need much, needs a, maybe just a little bit of tweaking, but it's a good cap rate. So there's, so absolutely. And that's not off the table. Okay. Well, let's, um, let's pretend that we're talking about assets that need a lift, um, need a little bit of repositioning. Cause I'd like to dive into sort of financing and that refinancing. Can you sort of explain the financing structure that you would use for some of these projects? I mean, how does that refinancing process work? What are the benefits for your investors? Right. Yeah. So when you're doing a major repositioning and so the assumption is that you're basically emptying the building because it's simply, uh, there's simply too much renovation required to to have the tenants even if it's a staged termination the goal is during the interim period is to have the least amount of debt payments so i'm you're always doing an interest only uh short term uh financing uh usually with a credit union they tend to be very very flexible uh very limited uh requirements in terms of advancing the funds uh, there are credit unions that are not so flexible, and uh, I, I stay away from them. Uh, the goal here is to get the job done 
pretty quickly have money advanced in stages as you fix up the building and get that interim financing. And usually in the commitment letter with, for example, the, the lender, the credit union, they will stipulate uh, when they're going to be advancing the funds, how long the interim finance is going to be. And then at that point, at your option, you can then lock it in with principal and interest. Okay. But obviously, a lot of holding costs if you're emptying the building. Sure. There's holding costs. Uh, so you have to take when you're when you're determining the the budget. I mean, and you learn, you know, as you do this. I've certainly made my share of mistakes, but you do learn in terms of you know that little line item that you forgot, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so it's very important. Vacancy cost. I've certainly forgotten the, the costs of paying out tenants for moving. Yes, you know, five hundred dollars up to five hundred dollars. So. You, you want to try and you want to try and include as many hard and soft costs that you can think of. Uh, the lenders don't necessarily cover it all, so there's going to be some there's going to be some equity that you're going to be required unless you're able to secure another uh, line of credit somewhere. Right, but the idea, hopefully, like let's say the credit union won't cover some of those holding costs. Yeah. Um, the investors, let's see, have four investors. Well, there would be a cash call there with the hope that when you reposition and you refinance, that they can even get some of that back. Yeah, it's a very good point, Garrett. So what's very important is when you're certainly when you're dealing with co-owners, you know, because again, if you make a mistake, or if you forget something, and it's just yourself, you just sort of think, oh, you know, I forgot about this, Cal, well, I'll just contribute equity, right? Right. But when you're dealing with four or five other people, the more you can think up front and tell them, listen, and, and say, okay, the lender is not going to contribute equity for certain soft costs. So I'm calculating all those soft costs right up front. And so uh, at a certain point, when you tell the the owners that I, I need a certain amount, you want to include all those expected costs that the lender is not going to cover. And they should front those costs. They contribute those costs right up front. And this way you've got your, uh, your kitty, your reserve, so that uh, you can deal with that. Right. Because the more that you can show your investors that there isn't anything later, the better you yeah, look as well. Exactly. Exactly. If you can, uh, I know it may be a little bit hard to swallow initially in terms of, okay, you know, this is the price. This is, this is how much equity plus you need to contribute this amount because of such and such. Ultimately, it's, it's much better to get that right done right off, right off the bat. Okay. So let's talk about renovations. I mean, I know any renovation, we can't really go into specifics, but what's sort of the strategy when you look at an asset that needs to be repositioned? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. Ultimately, I'm going to use another cliche. All right. Bring it on. <laughs> your first, first cliche is you're not building a grand piano. Okay. Um, with these existing stock apartment buildings. You can't, you're not rebuilding it. You're not, if you were to spend, uh, if you were to rebuild the entire, the, the, the apartment block, the existing apartment block, usually many of them are built in the sixties and seventies. It, it may not be feasible. The, re, the, the return may go down if you start considering every single deferred, uh, deferred maintenance item. So when you're going into these buildings, you're balancing between what can I what can I do that will uh, reduce the deferred maintenance for a number of years? But also, what can I do to enhance the aesthetic value, the aesthetic appeal to this building, and in, improve the amenities to the tenants? All the while, thinking about 
the uh, Tenancy Act legislation to ensure that you're uh, maximizing your your increase above the allowable guideline, which is the avenue that I use all the time for these refinance. For well, these repositioning. It's, it's quite a balancing act. I it mean, is quite a balancing yeah. act. It is. And this is where there's a big divide between yourself as the managing partner, if you're an equity, if you're investing, and the other co-owners, is that they don't understand. They Many of them think that you're repositioning and then you've knocked out every single deferred maintenance item for the next 10 years. And they question with you, you know, several years later, well, how come we're spending money on this? Well, I'm not, I didn't build a grand piano, right? Right. Yeah, no, it's uh, you can't. I mean, even if you know that something's going to be eventually need to be done, if you spend the money on it now and it's not a cosmetic item, you can't even justify it in the market rent because it's not yeah. an amenity that's going to attract it's the right type of tenant. It's not an amenity, and the cost of doing it is such it's 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 so expensive. Um, it's yeah, exactly. You can't tackle everything. The goal, the objective, is to in, in, enhance the cash flow. Uh, that's ultimately the goal, to enhance the cash flow such that you can cover your costs as much as possible with debt. Okay. You know, you said something there about owners, co-owners that want certain things. Um, the next question I was going to ask you, it's a great segue. How do you manage that collaboration between these owners? I mean, do you need a system or a structure? Is it just phone calls? But I mean, there has to be some kind of structure. Um, I mean... So I do have a, with respect to repositioning, I do have a project management agreement. So everyone's got to sign this project management agreement and it provides, okay. provides me the authority to spend money on their behalf and, and do all the things that I need to do, including uh, ap applying for an increase above the allowable guideline. If any, to any type of legal work to do on their behalf in order, in order to, to get the job done. So once they sign that agreement, there's an understanding. They're not going to be uh, necessarily insisting that a certain tap be used, for example, or a certain t a color countertop. Having said that, it's it's a fine balance be between with respect to you know getting some information from in terms of an owner, an owner, sort of some, some of their interests, some of their wants, uh, but ultimately uh, ensuring that you can run the operation efficiently. Uh, but most importantly is the transparency and the communication. Periodic transparency, periodic communication and being very transparent is the name of the game. So periodic uh, sending uh, uh, to the owners of, of how the project is doing, how the actual costs versus budgeted costs, and then in antis anticipated costs. That's very important. If there's issues and we can certainly talk about that you know all sorts of issues i mean you're dealing with construction again you know opening a wall is like opening a can of worms right especially when it's an old building so the the quicker your transparency you know just suck it up take a deep breath and send out an email i've gone over budget on certain items and therefore x yeah no i think what you touched on there i mean <laughs> Maybe you can just give me typical examples of percentages because I, I kind of want to use that in my example here. But I, I mean, would 20% uh, or 10 or 20% sort of be a typical percent of equity that a managing partner might ask for for finding the deal and doing all of this stuff and the project management with that? So, yeah, you're talking about the cost. So, yeah, of course, I charge, I charge for my services. I tend to be pretty low in terms of the charge, but, but I, t I'll, I tend to charge a percent of the total cost of capital expenditures. 
So it'd be like 5% of total cost of capital expenditures. And that would include, and that's those, that's my fee. But are you taking that in form of equity at the end no, of the day? No, okay. just cash. Because I, the equity partner that I'm affiliated is a family holding company and it has, it has equity. It doesn't, I don't need to, to take that in a form. And in even my own holding company, I wouldn't, I don't need to, to do, I, I have, my own holding company has equity to, to play with. So I've never done it where taking equity in lieu of, of, of cash. I've never done that. And also a lot of it has to do with this, the management structure, the, uh, the, the structure of the management company where, where that money, uh, the, the fees would go into the, actually the property management business. Uh, and then, uh, you know, in this specific example, my holding company would take a little bit of percentage of that fee. But that, again, that, that's very specific to my property management company. But as you pointed, Garrett, uh, lots, lots of, there's nothing wrong with taking an equity in lieu of a cash payment. Yeah. I think where I'm coming from that is again, at this conference, uh, the I would say, I mean, it's all over the place, but I, I heard the number 20% thrown around a lot. And that is, again, you've got your passive partners who are, you know, getting the, the investment part of it, yeah. the money. And then you've got the active partner who is finding the deal, determining what's going to be happening. Maybe they're taking an extra project management fee and that is always happening there. But I guess my point is if they they have this 20% equity, but you've got 80% coming from the people who are actually putting up the money. I can imagine that there could be some micromanaging wanting to go on there. I want the gold taps, not the silver taps. Um, yeah. Why did you put this wall there? And yet these are people who are not in the game. They don't know this stuff. How do you manage those? Well, I mean, you said transparency and communication. Yeah, I but- mean, ultimately, uh, I mean, you're entitled to your fair share of, uh, you're entitled to your fair share for doing the work. Uh, don't be too greedy. That's important. I've certainly heard situations where, entities or individuals that do these syndications and do these co-ownerships, they're very greedy. Uh, they're taking fees on all sorts of things. And you start hearing about it in the community. Uh, so you have to be careful. You have to be careful about that. Again, you know, when you do, when you, if it's a new property and you do a co-ownership and you, and you take an equity position, you then ultimately manage the property. And by owning an equity, you manage it for, for an eternity. Right, of course. So that's a that's a income stream as well. You shouldn't be taken lightly. Okay. So three, four owners, the project is done, everybody's happy. Somebody decides that they want to exit for whatever reason. How do you how do you deal with that? It's a very tricky uh way of doing it. Uh one of my clients actually referred to as needling needling the thread. Oh, okay. It's, um, <laughs> The tricky part, there's there's several tricky parts. Part of it is, you know, in your in this business, you're likely managing property as well as owning it. So you're wearing different hats. You're wearing your property management hat. You're wearing wearing you're wear if you have an equity interest in the property, then you're wearing your real estate investor hat. And by wearing your real estate investor hat, then you have there's a bit there you it could be misconstrued as a conflict of interest. Ultimately, though, a good co-ownership agreement is very, very important, and that dictates how that person can sell. And I've had experiences where we've managed properties for many, many years, uh, where my dad, it, we, back in the olden days, where people uh, shook hands and there was no agreement. 
Then when it came time where the one of the ownerships wanted to one of the owners wanted to sell, it was very very difficult. Ultimately, you're negotiating a price with that uh, minority co-owner, and the understanding that that minority co-owner does not really have much of an option outside the co-ownership to sell its equity, its interest, its undivided interest. There's essentially no market or very limited market. And that speaks to the concept of of fractional values uh, of reflective of a fractional interest. Okay. So it's trying to work with that minority co-owner or or fractional co-owner to come up with a, a value that they feel comfortable with and that you feel comfortable with. And then based on the co-ownership agreement, you, you take them out. Some co-ownership agreements uh, indicate where all the co-owners have an, have an ability to take a, their proportionate share. Some, some co-ownership agreements uh, don't speak about any of that. What's interesting, you know, uh, you have what's written and then you have the optics. And even if the co-ownership agreement doesn't speak to the fact that, oh, well, if someone is interested in offering their share, they first have to interest it to, they have to, they have to um, uh, offer it to every single uh, co-owner. And I have experienced, I've have experienced the the worst of the worst. You're not going to sneak by these co-owners that you've created this trust for years and years in order to just pick up this fractional interest for yourself. They would be disappointed. They would be upset for not telling them that this individual is interested in selling and inviting them to participate. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would assume that um, those that that change of ownership is covered in most agreements. But it I is. Think- but to, sorry to interrupt. But there. But sometimes there this this specific provision is missing. Certainly, modern day co ownership agreements, yes. But I've I've been dealing with a legacy of. Properties with no co-ownership agreements, with simple co-ownership agreements. And I had an experience, just to give a personal experience, where I did. I tried to purchase a fractional interest with my own holding company. And it it it, uh, it turned out really poorly. Uh, not with necessarily the other co-owners, although they, pro- they probably were a little bit disappointed. But in terms of... Um, the the conflict of interest between uh, being a in the management side and the ownership side. So let's say that you have again. I use the, the you know number three or four co owners of which you are are one, and somebody wants to sell. I mean, how do you and you put it up to everybody, right? Hey, John is uh, you know he's trying to get out of the game. His interest of thirty three percent is up for grabs. How do how do you guys decide how who's taking it? Right. So in most cases, you are the managing partner. You're the one with the expertise. You come up with the value. And it could be done through an appraisal mm-hmm. or, uh, or not, but someone's got to come up with the value. At a, and then, at, at, then ultimately, a meeting amongst those co-owners that are interested in remaining needs to be had. Whether it's a formal meeting or whether it's calling up the, each individual owner and getting their feeling of what they want to do. Uh, some may say, I'm not interested. And that certainly affects the, uh, your ability to uh, purchase it. Because if one person opts out, 
if one entity opts out, then you don't necessarily have the ability to leverage the property. And that's going to affect value. You know, value is built up by the cost and ability to place debt on it and equity. That's actually what builds up the cap rate, debt and equity. And if one entity opts out and you can't leverage the building to purchase out this minority interest, then everyone needs to prov provide cash contributions. Well, that changes the entire valuation of that fractional interest. Right, right. But yes, exactly that. Once you have a discussion with the, with the remaining owners, uh, then you can, by way of a lawyer, for example, then start negotiating with the uh, co-owner that wants to exit. Okay. Um, I'd like to transition and segue a little bit to, we've been speaking about those buzzwords, trust. And I mean, you, if you put together three or four owners, are you choosing personalities? You're like, I think Gary can work with John and John can work with Sam. I, I mean, are you just trying to sort of do matchmaking? Yes. You're sort of trying to do matchmaking if you can. I mean, if you've got the, if you've got your, your book of investors, um, you are doing some matchmaking because some some investors uh, are have big big balance sheets. Some have smaller balance sheets. Some are don't mind uh, uh, a B area. Some only want A. Uh, so you are doing a bit of matchmaking, and ultimately, you're looking at the the vision, the investment vision, or the the investment horizon of an individual investor. What's very important is choosing your investors uh, such that they're going to be good partners. That's very, very important. Uh, generally speaking, uh, you may come across someone who has a tremendous amount of uh, money and is willing and able to invest that money. But if you don't get a good gut feeling about them uh, as to be partners, you should stay away. And it's hard because they may say, listen, or you, you may meet a, uh, have a client and say, I know a guy, he's got millions and he wants to invest. You may have this client, you may have a bad feeling about that client. And because of that, you may need to turn away. So it is, it is matchmaking. It's also being selective on your investors as well. Okay. You know, I can't even believe uh, we're almost out of time here. Uh, we're going to have to have a part two because I kind of wanted to go over renovations and actual project management. But I, I always uh, end off the podcast asking the same question to each guest. And so hopefully you, uh, you listened to some previous episodes and you're prepared, but uh, here we go. So this is the Investing to Win podcast. How do you define success and what does winning look like for you? Right. And we've taught, we broached that topic near the, near the beginning part, and it's about the trust. Winning is, is earning the trust of not just your co-owners, but all stakeholders. Uh, it's winning the trust of your lenders, your co-owners, your lawyers, your trades, the appraisers, the consultants, and, and your staff and your company. You, they need to trust you as much you trust them. Because when they trust you, then you can get the job done. Uh, a lot easier. And at the end of the day, after doing this for many, many years, when you see the different stakeholders, when you meet them on the street and you know that they trust you uh, and that you've been a good steward, you've been a good, a good role model. Well, I mean, that's ultimately what feels good about this. Yeah. Okay. Great place to end. Cal, I'd, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show. 
Um, lots to unpack in future episodes. Um, I know our audience really enjoyed this. Um, thank you very much. No problem, Gary. I hope you enjoyed the episode today on the Investing to Win podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you are listening to this on. If this episode made you think of another investor, take a screenshot and share this podcast episode with them. Investing to Win is not only about helping you to win more, but WIN actually stands for Wise Investors Network. It's where we help our investors build a hands-off portfolio and have passive investments work for them. To see how you can potentially partner with us, go to www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest to learn more. Once again, the link is www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest. All links can be found in the description below. Until next time.